0: like to uh, get you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra 7, we'll be looking uh, really just at verse 10 today. Um, The title of our sermon this morning is, Set Your Heart. The key words are, Study, Do, and Teach. Hypocrisy is a, a loaded and perhaps overused word in our day, but it is a term that we as the church, must, we must come to grips with it. A common refrain that unbelievers will sing when they are asked why they don't either believe in God or why they don't attend church is because what? The church is full of hypocrites. This, of course, in an ultimate sense, is not a legitimate excuse. They're at war with God. However, There is some ring of truth to this. There are hypocrites in the church. Now, I understand and in this sense mean the word hypocrite to apply really only legitimately to people, to certain people. Not everyone in the church is a hypocrite by this definition, or probably even most Christians, even some, but a few. Because all Christians, we we can act hypocritically. All of us live inconsistently with what we profess to believe about ourselves, about God, and about the world. But there is a difference in the person who, because he is imperfect, doesn't live perfectly in light of his commitments. There's a difference between that person and the person who merely pretends to have virtues, moral principles, religious beliefs, etc., that he does not, in fact, possess at all. The hypocrite is the person who says one thing and does another as a way of life. There's little to no remorse for his wrongdoings, no true repentance for her contradictions. Each of us here this morning can think of examples of people in our lives that we've encountered that might fit this description. Just recently... In the last week, I've read of another well-known megachurch celebrity pastor who was found to be a serial adulterer. We could spend the whole time this morning finding examples of hypocrisy wreaking havoc on the church. Hypocrisy brings shame upon the church and upon the name of Christ. And so how do we avoid being hypocrites? Who blaspheme God's name among the nations? How can we live so that we aren't the cause of someone else's stumbling? While it's important that we not expect ourselves to be perfect, I do believe there is a pattern, a progression that we may follow that will help us from falling into such error. It will keep us from hypocrisy. And we see it laid out for us in the life of Ezra. The priest. If you're not familiar with Ezra, I doubt you are alone. We read of Ezra primarily in two books tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah. In the Hebrew Bible, these actually comprise one book, but in our English Bibles, they are separated as two, although they stand side by side and they do tell um, kind of different parts of the same story. Ezra and Nehemiah tells the story of the time after Babylon had sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and carried the Israelites away into exile. After Babylon's reign as world empire, the Persians had become top dog. And during the first year of uh, the king of uh, sorry during the first year of the reign of King Cyrus, the Jews were permitted to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. In the first six chapters of Ezra, we read of King Cyrus' decree that permitted the Israelites to return to their own land to rebuild. Only a portion of the Israelites living in exile, however, did actually begin to return and rebuild the altar and the temple. Unfortunately, as probably is to be expected, there was a severe oppression um, and opposition to the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. And so, through some tricky political pandering, the work is ordered to cease. But eventually, the building recommences and is finished in chapter 6. We find ourselves this morning in chapter 7, which picks up 60 years later, and we are introduced to Ezra, a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, who is sent with a second convoy of exiles to Jerusalem to teach the people And he does all of this under the rule of King Artaxerxes. We learn a bit more about his teaching in Nehemiah chapter 8, where we see Ezra would stand on a platform in front of and above the people, and he would read the Word of God to them. He would teach them the meaning. He would explain its sense so that the people understood the reading. This is what he Did This was his life, teaching God's people. And I would like to focus with you this morning on just this one verse, verse 10 in chapter 7, as I believe it serves not only as a descriptor of the kind of person that Nehemiah was, but it also serves as a pattern for us to follow in our own lives as we seek to be free of the dreadful condition of hypocrisy that so plagues the human race. We'll read... Uh, The first 10 verses together, and then we will outline them, or outline verse 10, and then we'll get to it. Ezra 7, beginning in verse 1. Now, after this, in the reign of King Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of uh, Mariath, Mariath, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there he went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, Some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests, and Levites, and the singers, and gatekeepers, the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And so reading these verses Ezra was clearly a very he was a blessed man. And we might ask why? What was the cause of the Lord's blessing on him? Well, in one sense we can certainly say it pleased the Lord. But according to verse 10, it was also Ezra's resolute faithfulness to avoid hypocrisy. Consider the progression of his work. First, he studied the law. Then he purposed in his heart to do what the law said. And finally, he taught the law to others. These three acts then will serve as the outline for our sermon this morning. In other words, if we are to live faithfully before God and in the world, we must set our hearts first to study God's word. We must then be doers of that word. And finally, we are to teach that word to others. First, then, let's consider our responsibility to study God's word. The first thing we see in verse 10 is that Ezra made it his first order of business to study the law. This is is foundational to the genuine Christian life. We, like Ezra, must be students of God's Word. We must commit ourselves to knowing what it says. We must know what it says about God, about us, about heaven, about hell. We must know what it says about salvation. We must know what it says about faith and obedience. We must know the message of the Bible. For an example of the, in the importance of studying God's word, consider this charge to any who would have been king in Israel. Deuteronomy 17:18 says, "And when he that is the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law. And these statutes in doing them. The king was explicitly commanded to study, to know the Word of God, that he might be a faithful ruler over God's people. And yet it was not just the king or the priest or the scribe who was to study God's Word. Psalm 119 is a long poem about the beauty, power, and desirableness of God's Word. And not just for the leaders uh, of God's people, but for all of God's people. The psalm is divided into 22 stanzas, one for each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Verses 1 to 8, for example, each verse begins with the letter Aleph. Verses 9 through 16, each begin with the letter Beit, and so on. And you see those little headings in Psalm 119. Those are the names of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's this beautiful acrostic poem. And I want to listen in for a moment to how the psalmist views God's Word. In verse 6 he says, Then I shall not be put to shame, having fixed my eyes on all your commandments. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 15, I will meditate on all Your precepts and fix my eyes on Your ways. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of Your law. Verse 31, I cling to Your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. Verse 40, behold, I long for Your precepts in Your righteousness. Give me life. Verse 47, I find delight in Your commandments, which I love. Verse 54, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And that, my friends, is just a sampling from half of the psalm. Psalm 119 is full of these proclamations. Psalm 119 makes plain God's Word is lovely, His law is beautiful, and God's people are blessed to drink it in. According to Psalm 119, studying, delighting in, and loving God's Word keeps us from being put to shame, keeps us from sinning against God, Positions us to behold wondrous things. It gives us life, provides for us richly, more richly than thousands of gold and silver pieces, and keeps us from perishing in our affliction, to name but a few of the joys found in knowing, studying, and loving the Word of God. And this is not a theme of the Psalms only, but of the whole Bible. Here's a few. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In other words, the path to loving God supremely lays in His Word. In it alone shall we find our way. In Joshua 1.8, God instructs Joshua never to let the book of the law depart from his mouth but to meditate it, meditate on it day and night. In Acts 17.11, we read of the, 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 the Bereans who were commended for committing themselves to the study of God's Word so that they might know whether the things that they were being taught were true. In Second Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy to, to present himself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, who rightly handles the word of truth. According to these texts, and many others we could consider, God's people are to be people of God's book. We are to be those who study God's Word. We must know it. We must love it. We must store it up in our hearts. We must set it before our eyes. We must commit it to memory. We must meditate upon it day and night. And this is not primarily out of a sense of duty as if we are going to be Rebuked, and we're going to get in trouble if we fail to do this. We study God's word for the same reason we eat food. We study God's word for the same reason we wear an oxygen tank when we go scuba diving. When we thirst, it is our drink. When we hunger, it is our food. When we are blind, it is our light. When we are sick, it is our health. God's Word is a never-ending fountain of delight to which we may and are invited to journey again and again and again. And so, my dear friends, if you are unsure of what tomorrow brings, if you are especially unsure of what tomorrow brings, you may turn to God's Word. Think of Ezra. He set his heart to study God's Word. But he wasn't in a comfortable office, a nice house. He wasn't even really in the temple. The temple had been rebuilt, but the city was in ruins. He was in Babylon, sent to Jerusalem to help rebuild the city, to help teach the people. He was living under the rule of a godless pagan king, with his city still in ruins, and it was precisely there that he set his heart upon God and upon His Word. And it is precisely there that we may do the same. But all of this talk about studying God's Word must lead us to a second point this morning. And that is our obligation, our duty, our delight to do and to keep God's Word. We see, secondly, that Ezra not only set his heart to study the law, but to do it. In James chapter 1, we read this. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is a man. He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and immediately goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If we seek to feed upon God's Word without also walking in the obedience required in God's Word, we will end up with ashes in our mouths. God's Word is not merely for the hearer. It's not merely in the hearing and understanding of God's Word that we find blessing. It is also in the doing and the keeping of God's Word. Both are necessary. There have been many throughout the ages who have read God's Word with no benefit to their souls. There have been many, in fact, who even enjoyed reading and studying God's Word. And yet it did not bring them any closer to God. They saw it not as God's word to be known, loved, and obeyed. They merely saw it, perhaps, as a fascinating book, which it is. But their study led to no action, no belief, no love. And so they received no ultimate benefit from their study. To study God's word without also doing it, we become antinomians, lawless. To attempt to keep God's Word without loving it and knowing it, we become Pharisees. How many of us here this morning are content to be hearers only? Perhaps you enjoy listening to sermons. Maybe you like reading books and blog posts. You enjoy having conversations with others about various points of doctrine and theology. But when it comes to walking in faithful obedience to the commands of Scripture, you are wildly inconsistent at best. You know, you may not go so far as to say that you have no desire to obey Christ. But the truth of the matter, perhaps, for some of us is obedience is just not that important. If that's, if that's you this morning, let me offer you this exhortation According to James 1 a second ago, at the end of that chapter, he says that if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart, and that person's religion is worthless. And what about the rest of your being? How about your eyes? Have you bridled your eyes that they might not look where they shouldn't look? What about your hands? Are your hands under control that they don't touch what they shouldn't touch? How about your feet? Are your feet so under your command that they never carry you to a place of mischief? And what about your thoughts? Do you have such a rain on your thoughts that you would be perfectly content for the rest of us to see a replay of your thoughts from the past week, the past day, the past hour? The truth is, most of us here, I imagine, would not say that we have no interest in keeping God's Word. And yet, we all deeply struggle to keep God's Word. In fact, every single one of us here this morning has utterly failed to keep God's Word as we ought. And we continue to fail every single day. Every day, for each and every one of us, there is a disconnect between our longing for, delight in God's word, and our ability, and maybe sometimes even our desire to keep God's word. Thankfully, there was one who delighted in God's law, but he didn't just delight in God's law, he kept God's law. And I'm not talking about Ezra. You see, Ezra studied and kept God's law, but did he do so perfectly? Of course not. Ezra was a sinner, just like you and me. He led an exemplary life, but he still needed to be saved from his sins. I am then, of course, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus loved righteousness, and he hated wickedness. The Psalms we read earlier find their fulfillment First, in Christ. Psalm 119, and it is by Christ, about Christ, to Christ, and for Christ before it says anything to the rest of us. You see, Jesus hid God's Word in His heart. He meditated on it and longed for God's precepts. But of course, He did not merely love and study God's law, but He kept it. And He kept it so that when He offered His life as a sacrifice for sin, he might be an acceptable substitute in the place of sinners like me and you. You see, he loved and kept the law that you and I are supposed to love and keep, but don't. We don't love God and his word with all of our being. We don't keep his word perfectly. But Jesus did. And he died and gave his life in exchange for all who would believe in him. Are you lost? Are you hurt? Are you scared? Are you weary? Come to Jesus. Find rest in Him. Find safety in Him. Find relief in Him. Find direction in Him. Would you give up chasing your own dreams and following your heart? Would you commit yourself to study God's Word and to keep it? And having this faith in Jesus, we can commit ourselves to this knowing that although we will do it imperfectly, we can do it sincerely, and God loves us and has given His Son for us, and through faith we are forgiven and welcomed into the family of God to forever in the grace and strength that He provides strive to be a doer who acts and not a hearer who hears, so that we will be blessed in our doing. Well, third, would you consider with me the responsibility that we then have as not only hearers, but doers of God's Word, but we have a responsibility to teach God's Word. We see Ezra's third and final commitment in verse 10 to the teaching of God's Word. This is the culmination of the previous two commitments. In Ezra, we see a man whose commitment to study God's Word and to put into practice what he learns, we see this erupt into the instruction of others. And it is vitally important that we get this order right here. This is why James says that not many of us should strive to be teachers. Because it's so easy to get the order wrong. It is so easy to study the Word and to teach the Word without putting it into practice. Likewise, it's easy to teach the Word and neither study nor practice it. The world is full of charlatans who spend their lives teaching others and yet have seemingly not learned a single thing for themselves from their time in the Word. May it not be so with us. I'd like to take a few minutes before we close here and offer a word of exhortation to us here this morning regarding this duty to teach the Word. Parents, how have you done in getting this order right with your children? Do you often seek to teach your children things about God that you yourself haven't embraced in your own heart? Do you attempt to get your children to be doers of the Word when you are a hearer only? Mothers and fathers, the significance of your role in loving, obeying, and teaching God's Word in your children's lives cannot, it cannot be overstated. And the importance of keeping these acts in that order, likewise, cannot be overstated. Would you, if you haven't already aimed to make that order, right in your life? This, of course, does not mean that we must spend every waking second reading the Bible or commentaries or listening to sermons and podcasts before we teach our children anything. But do you utilize those things at all? Do you strive to have regular time set aside to learn from God, to dwell with God, to imbibe of the riches of His grace? Is theology important to you? I don't mean, of course, that you should all go to seminary. Perhaps some of you should. Perhaps for some of you, that's the very thing you should do. Would you consider how God is calling you to greater depths of study and love for His Word in your life? Perhaps more In depth, rigorous study of God's Word in some kind of seminary or training setting is exactly what God is inviting you to do. But for most of us here, most of you here who won't be going to seminary, you won't be diagramming Greek sentences anytime soon, do you make use of the countless resources and opportunities that you have? Are you not sure where to begin? Come and talk with one of us, and we would love to point you in the right direction. And at bottom, start by reading the Word. And do you put into practice what you study? Or are we content to sit, soak, and sour? You may read a lot. You may listen to podcasts and sermons every day. Perhaps you're always very quick to jump in on a good social media debate regarding the more tertiary points of theology and the major ones too. But do you love your neighbor? Husbands, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church? Wives, do you follow and submit to the loving though imperfect leadership of your husband? Children, do you make it your aim to honor your parents and obey them since this pleases the Lord? employees, employers, do you treat the people you work with fairly and with integrity? At some level, this comes down to who is at the center of your thoughts every day. Who, who sits at the center of your thoughts most of the day? Is it, is it yourself or, or is it the Lord and, and His people? And other people? Lost people? When you don't get your way, do you respond with anger and wrath? Or do you pout and withdraw? Or do you respond with grace and love? Are you a lover of the truth? Not just when you believe it will advance your own point in an argument, but even when it comes at a high cost to you. Do you strive to keep your eyes and ears and hands where they belong and off of other people's bodies, away from others' gossiping lips, and out of other people's stuff, respectively? And the, the point of all of this, to say it again, is not that we must do these things perfectly or even close to perfectly. We have a great high priest who lives and intercedes for us. Jesus who did these things perfectly for us. And our acceptance with God is based on that alone. But if we have put our trust in Jesus, we've been made right with God. How do our lives look? Are they overflowing or flowing at all with love and grace to God and our neighbor? Do you seek the opportunities that you do have to teach others? For most of you, this probably means primarily your children. But perhaps you have other opportunities to instruct friends and family in the gospel, in the law and the gospel. Do you seek those out or at least take those opportunities when they come? Maybe you feel so utterly inadequate and incapable incapable of being able to to teach others, but do you use the gifts that you do have to bring about the teaching of others? Do you use your own giftings to see to it that people who are gifted teachers, that they have other opportunities to speak to the people that you know? A good example that we've used here before at RBC is of what this might look like is maybe you're a very hospitable person. Perhaps you know how to throw a good party. Have a barbecue. Invite some friends over. Invite your unbelieving friends over. As well as some believing, some Christian friends. Specifically those who you know are good with the word. You find someone capable, gifted, a willing evangelist to, to meet and to speak with those who are lost. You may not be the teacher, but you have set up the classroom. And so we, we let these, the study and the obedience of the word flow out into teaching in our lives. To my fellow elders and deacons, brothers, how about us? Do we make it our practice to study, to obey, and then and only then to teach God's Word? The responsibility is ours to set the example, to lead the way in this matter. What is it that this church needs? What is it that this community needs? They need men who will study the Bible, live according to its truth, and teach it to others. Jim Hamilton writes in his commentary in Ezra, No method program or initiative can be more effective than the power of the living and active word of God. He goes on, "Set your heart to learn the scriptures. Do not settle for anything else. Do not get distracted from the scriptures with nifty tricks or culturally savvy insights. People need Jesus. Jesus is revealed in the Bible. The Spirit uses the Bible to open the eyes to open their eyes to see Christ." God the Father has been pleased to give us a book, words inked on a page, written by humans inspired by the Holy Spirit. Do not get so lost in books written by the uninspired that you cannot find your way to the Bible. As the the youngest member of those among the church leadership here, I count it a blessing to have you older men older and wiser men for me to seek guidance in this way. I thank God for each and every one of you and I pray for you often. I pray that God would sustain you and your families. That God would enable you to persevere in the path of obedience. I pray that you would love God's Word, that you would study God's Word, that you would throw yourself into it, that it would consume and master you. Brothers, and everyone here in this room this morning, may you wrestle with God in his word and may you refuse to let him go until he blesses you. And I pray your hearts full of love for God and his word, would they pour out in obedience in your lives. And as you have, find and make opportunity, tell others of the wondrous works that God has done. Not just in your life, but in the lives of His people in all the world throughout all the ages. The task before us, my friends, is a heavy one. It is far too heavy for us to lift alone, but we are not alone. God is faithful. He will surely do it. And lastly, once more, if you're here and you're not a teacher, you're not a doer, you're a hearer only, and perhaps at times only barely that, I pray that you would receive and respond to this invitation now. There is no greater joy that you will find in all the world than to commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an easy commitment, but it is a joyful one. There is no greater pleasure that you will find than the ones, all of the ones, the myriad of pleasures at Christ outstretched right. Are Jesus Christ offers Himself to you now. My friends, the failures of our lives that stand against us in the courtroom of heaven are no match for the justice and incomparable grace of our God. He lived the life that we should but wouldn't. He died the death that we should but dare not attempt. And he has been raised to newness of life, that through faith in his life, death, and resurrection, we might be made new in him. And so if you don't know him this morning, would you turn in simple faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and find the rest that your soul craves? And if you do, would you once more go to him?